And suddenly, in this week's Parsha, um, the king of Moab, whose name was Balak, decides to hire someone named Bilam. A lot of confusing B names. So uh, let's just focus on the Bilam one. Balak's the king. Bilam is a sorcerer prophet. And he hires Bilam to work his magic to curse the Jewish people. Does that sound cool? Exciting, right? All right, let's get ready. What's going to happen? So Bilam says to the servants who come to bring him um, to curse the Jewish people, he says, why do you want me to curse the Jewish people? Don't you know that whatever God tells me to do, that's all I'm able to do? So he clearly believes in God, and he believe he he makes it very clear that a person can't go against God's will. So if that's the case, so what is what's what's the plan? How's he going to curse the Jewish people if God doesn't want to curse the Jewish people? He's not going to curse them, and yet he nonetheless goes, and God tells him, "No, you can't go with these people," and then and then. Uh, Bilaam really begs and begs, and God says, okay, you can go with the people. And from this, the Talmud learns a very cool lesson that whichever way a person wants to go in life, you will be guided in that direction. So if you really want it, you can have it. And this could be the, what's called uh, in, in modern uh, pop New Age psychology, the, uh, the secret of manifestation, right? You guys familiar with that? Yes? that you can manifest your own reality by visualizing it, focusing on it, meditating on it. You can actually bring about what you want to happen in your life. So some people ask, is that a Jewish concept? Should we do that? Should we utilize the power of positive thinking or the power of manifestation or visualization in order to bring about the reality that we want in this world? So you would say, perhaps, yes, it is Jewish. We learn it from this week's we, we learn it in the Talmud. The Talmud says, whichever way a person wants to go, they'll be leaded, guided that way from, from heaven. God will guide you in the direction you want to go. But we learn it from Bilaam, from this, this evil sorcerer guy. And the, the way he wants to go is he wants to curse the Jewish people. So God says, okay, fine. If that's what you want, you can do it. So perhaps it's not a Jewish concept that our job in life isn't to manifest what we want. It's to learn for us to align ourselves with what, with what God wants. So it's a very different approach. We do have the ability to bring about what we want to happen. There's a Jewish saying, a famous Jewish saying. It's, an, it's, it's pretty ancient. It's not from the Talmud, we don't think, but uh, we don't know an actual source. But it says, Ein hadaver omid which means nothing stands in the way of your willpower. If you want it, you can have it. If you build it, they will come. You can you can do what you want in this world, and nothing will stop you. And that's precisely why in Judaism, why we pray. Because the goal of prayer is not to manifest what we want, as I've heard some people say, that maybe prayer is a form of manifestation, that we're praying, focusing on something to bring to the world. I say on the contrary, the purpose of prayer is to ask Hashem to not give us what we want, but to give us what's good for us. You see, because we can want all sorts of things that aren't good for us. So the purpose of prayer is say, Hashem, I want to align myself with your will, with what's going to be good ultimately for me and for the world, that I can become a better person and I can do more good in this world and I can bring about more good and I can grow and accomplish what I'm supposed to accomplish. But not that I should get what I want, because who said that's good for me? Got it? Anyway, that was just a side point. But if you found that interesting, I did. Um, so. We have that in common, at least. All right, moving along. Um, so Bilaam decides to go ahead, even though God told him not to. And he goes, and he goes with Balak's uh, servants, and he goes to where the Jews are encamped in the desert, and he looks out at their encampment, and he attempts to curse them three times. And each time, his curses, the Talmud says, explains, are transformed into blessings. And from the blessings of Bilaam, we get some of the most beautiful praises of the Jewish people. And every time he comes back and he, he, he like goes, he's like, all right, I'm going to curse him. I'm going to curse him. He goes into a trance. 
and he starts blessing the Jewish people. And Balak says, what are you doing? I hired you to curse them. What are you doing? He said, I told you, I can only do what God tells me to do. And then he goes and he tries again. And again, he blesses them. And this is like crazy. We have, we actually have, because, through the, the, the prophecies of Bilaam, we have actually uh, all, uh, whole sorts of references to the Messiah, Mashiach, which we don't have anywhere else in the Torah. Some of the most famous verses of the Torah come from this blessing. It's really weird, though. So the questions, first of all, does anyone have any questions? That's basically the story, okay? That is the story, and at the very end of the story, he fails. He fails to curse the Jewish people. And at the very end of the story, he gives advice to Balak, and he says, you know what? This God of the Jewish people, one thing he hates more than anything is immorality. So I suggest that you get your daughters to go out and seduce the Jewish people, and then God's going to allow you to attack them. And that's basically what happens. Okay, and that will be a continuation. We'll talk about that next week because it ties into next week's Parsha. Okay, so any questions on this week's Parsha? It's just there's a, there's a reference about Mashiach coming, whatever. It's not... Rambam Maimonides gives one of his proofs for the concept of Messiah comes from this week's parsha. The blessings—they're just—they're just like a lot of them. They're long. You can, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I recommend taking a look. But anyone have any questions on anything in this parsha? Anything confusing yet? Because I'm gonna make it confusing in a second. Great question. What is sorcery? All right. And to make Jalen's question stronger, the Talmud says that Bilaam wasn't just a sorcerer. The Talmud says, it says at the end of the Torah that a, a prophet like Moshe did not rise up amongst the Jewish nation. And the Talmud makes what's called a diuk. It's when you say a statement and that implies another statement. So if I tell you a prophet like Moshe didn't arise amongst the Jewish people, so what's the inverse? What's the uh, what's the inference you can make? Bingo! Says the Talmud that, but amongst the non-Jewish people, there was a prophet as great as Moshe. Who was that? Bilam. Bilam, according to the Talmud, was as great as Moshe. Now that is very problematic. Because we know that Moshe, the Talmud says, the, the Torah says, was the humblest person who ever lived. Moshe spent his life refining himself, working on himself, purifying himself. And Bilaam, on the other hand, the Talmud explains, based on verses in the Parsha, that Bilaam was like the most lowest, disgusting person. Bilaam, it says, had a donkey who he used to ride. And uh, actually, if you ever saw the movie Shrek, so they got that idea from Bilaam's donkey. Bilaam's donkey was a talking donkey. But it wasn't just his donkey. The Talmud says Bilaam and his donkey were really close, if you get my drift. They were like, they were like, they were like roommates close. All right? Bilaam was married to his donkey. Yes, yes. That's what the Talmud says. The Talmud says that Bilaam says, this is my donkey that I ride. And the Talmud says, you know what he means? That's what he means. All right. The Talmud's not afraid to say all sorts of things that we would consider to be quite. Correct. Uh, um, bestiality is not permitted according to the Torah. So if Bilaam was this really low character, how was he able to have prophecy on the level of Moshe? Additionally, the Talmud says that Moshe's prophecy was unique, that Moshe had the ability to see with complete clarity. I'm going to explain a little bit about what prophecy is in a few minutes. But Moshe had a unique uh, quality of prophecy, clear, perfect vision. And he, could, he was the only prophet that we have recorded in the Torah who could speak to God while awake. The other prophets had to go into a trance, into a sleep-light state. And Moshe could speak to Hashem while, while basically staying in a conscious state. And on top of that, Bilaam, it says clearly in the words of Bilaam's prophecy that he fell down when he prophesied. 
he lay down because he didn't have the ability to stand. And the Talmud says, the commentaries explain, because he was not circumcised, his body didn't have the ability to for the divine presence to rest on him. So that's interesting. So again, it doesn't sound like Moshe. Now, on top of that, if Bilaam can only curse and can only do what God tells him to do, so how do you, does he have this ability to curse? What's, what's the problem about a curse? Think about it for a second. How does a curse work? Why is a curse problematic philosophically, theologically? Yeah, and what's problematic about that? And why would God listen to you if the other guy's a good guy and I'm like, jerk, right? Guy cuts me off on the highway. No, he doesn't cut me off on the highway. If he cut me off on the highway, maybe he deserves a curse. But he didn't cut me off on the highway. I just don't like the way he looks. And I say, curse you. And now God's like, all right, lightning strikes. That doesn't make any sense. If the guy's a good guy, why should he get cursed, right? And And if not, if he's really a bad guy, so then... He should get cursed with or without me, right? So there, in fact, there's there's a discussion, a very intense discussion in the uh, in the Talmud and commentaries about if you can hurt somebody, if the other person doesn't deserve it. We believe that you know God runs the world. That means, and and we we say many times that nothing bad can ever happen to you. And this is a topic that I've been kind of studying a little bit recently, but I'm not there yet to be able to give a class on it. But uh, my colleague, Rabbi Livingstone, thinks he has this one down. But can bad things happen to people that aren't meant to be? So there seems to be some debate in the literature, in the ancient literature, about if you can go up to someone and kill them if it's not their time to die. Is that we have free will, but do we have free will to harm other people? Because we believe that you do have free will, but only in certain areas. We don't have free will to do whatever we want. We have free will in our choices, not necessarily in the results of our choices. So anyway, that's a side point. But it's even more strong in this case. Why? Because here you're using spirituality to hurt a person. Now, maybe God gives you permission to kill someone. Maybe God gives you permission to kill someone even if it's not their time to go. Maybe maybe it does work that way. Maybe we have free will in that realm. But can I utilize spirituality to hurt somebody if it's not meant to be? So... In fact, there's a debate. Uh, one of the uh, famous commentaries, a Moroccan Kabbalist, the Orachayim, um, on, on, on this week's Parsha, he, the Orachayim himself says that a person can die, kill someone, without God's will. And it's, a very, it's quite radical, but there are, it seems to be that's the majority opinion. He says that an animal can never harm a person if it's not your time to go. Animals follow God's will, but a person who has free will has the ability to inflict harm on another person. Very interesting. Um, the flips. The other opinion is that you can you can never do anything that's not God's will. You can pull the trigger, but you can't determine whether or not that bullet's going to fly, right? So, so um, which is the the opinion of the Hasidim? That's the rad, radical um, radical determinism perspective of the Hasidim, which is that we have free will in our choices, not in our actions, not in the result that comes from our choices. We can choose to go right. We may never get there because there might be an earthquake or the car might not start, right? We can choose what we do and we're punished, so to speak, or rewarded for our choices, but not for the results of our choices. Anyway, that's the other side. But the Orachim who says that you can kill someone when it's not his time asks in this week's Torah portion, how can you curse someone if they're not meant to get cursed? To me, that sounds like a contradiction. If you can hurt someone, if it's not their time, then why can't you curse someone if it's not their time? And so I think the reason he's bothered is because cursing is using spirituality. It's, it's literally having God do it for you. How is that possible to have God curse someone if it's not meant to be? All right. So let's go into uh, a little bit. Question? Right. Right. So it, again, I think that's why the Orchaim is bothered is because how could you curse, right? We don't have free will in what God does. <laughs> that's for sure. We can't determine what God brings into this world, blessing or curse. So I think that's why he's bothered. 
But Bilaam did have free will. He used his free will to try to curse the Jewish people, and he gets punished for that. But, but okay, so now, the Talmud explains where Bilaam got some of his power. And uh, one of the ideas is that Bilaam utilized something called an ayin hara. Anyone familiar with the concept of ayin hara? If you have an old Jewish grandmother, you might have heard, what? Evil eye. You might have heard your grandmother, your babushka, or your bubby say, kenai nahara, or bli ayin hara. Anyone ever hear that? That means without an eye, an evil eye. So if you ever say like, um, like if you hear Jewish people say like, I have, uh, I have 12 grandchildren, kenai nahara. I have 12 grandchildren. I shouldn't get any evil eye. So what's the concept of evil eye? Is anyone familiar with the concept? What is it? How does it work? So you're thinking of maybe the hamsa, the um, that hand necklace that you see in uh, in Israel. It's actually it's actually an, a Mus it's actually a Muslim symbol. It's the yad of Fatima. Hamsa means hand or five in Arabic. Um, that's a good question. I actually asked someone. I went. I asked someone in in Israel. One of the guys selling stuff, and he's like, he's like, why are all these American tourists buying these hands? Don't they know it's a Muslim thing? <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah. It could be. It could be. It also has Jewish roots. Certainly could have Jewish roots, and it could be the Muslims got it from us. But that is supposed to ward off evil eye. But the evil eye itself is as follows. The concept is that we have the ability, just like we said, the secret manifestation. We have the ability to manifest reality. So the concept of evil eye is that our thoughts, specifically our eyes, have the ability to harm other people. When you look at someone and think negatively about them, especially jealousy or anger, then you actually can harm them with your thoughts, which is pretty intense. Another thing that's associated with the idea of Ayanhara is that an Ayanhara can only fall on something that is bound in, uh, in number. So, for example, um, there's a Jewish custom not to count people. So there's different verses that you can say, like if you want to see if you have 10 men in the room for a minion, so we say a certain verse that has 10 words in it to make sure that there are 10 people in the room. Or some people say not one, not two, not three, not four. But the, the, the custom is, is that if you count someone, and it says this in the Talmud, that an ayin hara can only fall on something that's counted. What does that mean? It means that when something's counted, you're literally binding it in the finite world. You're saying, this is all it is. I'm looking at the totality of this person, and there they are. That's a one, and that's a two, and that's a three. And when you... So, so maybe, maybe not everyone has this custom, but this is what the Talmud says. It says that an ayin hara can fall on something only if that thing exists in the finite numerical universe. So why is that? Because when, when you try not to, uh, out loud at least, when you count something, hold on, hold on, Julia, hold on. When you count something, I know what my kids' names are, and I look at them. Um, <laughs> Yeah, when you look at something and you count it, what you're essentially doing is you're 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 finalizing it in the physical world and saying this is what it is. But the reality is is that the, what we see with our physical eyes is just the tip of the iceberg. We only see a small piece of who the person is that we're looking at. All right? I'm looking at your bodies. Your eyes are the window to the soul. There's a whole depth when I look into your eyes, and the depth that you see in the eyes is just a piece of the depth of personality that that person has because their personality is only a tip of the iceberg of their soul because their soul is mag goes all the way up to the infinite it's there are dimensions upon dimensions to who you really are and we only have access to a very small part of who we really are it's only a very small part of the soul exists in the body the body is compared to a shoe only the foot of your soul rests in your body the body of your soul 
exists in a whole other dimension. So when a person counts something, what they're doing is they're limiting that person and they're saying, you are this and that's all you are. And at that moment, they become a little bit disconnected from their source of in spirituality. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. That is the reason. That's the reason. That's why you'll see by Lubavitchers, they'll say not one, not two, not three. Yeah. So the word evil we've talked about before in Hebrew, the word for evil, ra, means literally broken, disconnected. When something's disconnected from the big picture, from oneness, from the source, that becomes evil. The word curse in Hebrew, there are a few words for curse, but one of the words curse, nakfa, is uh, actually related to the uh, Palestinian word for the uh, for the the day that the state of Israel was founded, nakfa, right? Which is a curse. Um, means literally to cut, to limit, or to cut off, to limit. So. A curse is limiting the source of connection. So again, how do we have the ability to do that? And the answer is, is that we literally ha are, are all connected in a deep way. And our thoughts actually impact each other, our vibes, so to speak. So we'll get to how God allows that to exist. But we do have the ability to hurt someone. On the other hand, when you see good in another person, you actually bring out more goodness in that person you help to manifest the goodness that exists within the other person so um in fact there's a concept in in halacha jewish law that you're obligated to judge uh especially someone that you know is a righteous person someone who's a kosher jew who does good things you're obligated to don lechafskos that means ju judge them favorably so if you were to see me go into mcdonald's you have to assume I'm not going to get a cheeseburger or a Big Mac. I must be going to use the bathroom, right? So um, that's actually there. It's it's in typical, typically uh, in general, if a Jew has to go, if an observant Jew wearing a yarmulke has to go into a non-kosher restaurant, they should put on a Mets cap, right? Because um, that way, that way, it doesn't look like someone might not think, oh, maybe that restaurant's really kosher. But if you did see someone going in, you you know, first of all, if you see anyone with a Mets cap going into McDonald's, you know they're Jewish because Jews, the only Mets fans out there are Jews, right? But uh, so one time I had to use, I was going on a date uh, back back uh, a few, like maybe a year before I met my wife, actually maybe less than that. And I went, I was on my way to the date and I really had to go to the bathroom. So I pulled off over at a McDonald's and I put on a baseball cap. I always carry a baseball cap in my car just in case I have to cut someone off on the highway. I don't want them to think that, oh, you stupid Jews, bad driver. You know, you know if you ever miss the exit or whatever, you got to like cut in front of a thousand people on the exit ramp. So I put on my baseball cap. Or if I'm ever like driving in like Hicksville and like uh, outside of uh, of the city and I'm, you know, I'm in a, in a, you know, like the last week we went to Pennsylvania and I had to ask someone for directions. And, and we're talking like, Every guy we saw was shaved head with a beard and tattoos, right? And I'm like, I don't think these guys like Jews very much. So I usually put on a baseball cap when I have to ask directions from one of those guys. <laughs> I don't know. It's just my own issue, I guess. But um, I was, it was like actually a little scary. We we're going on a hike and like this, there are these trucks with all these skinhead guys with tattoos and beards. And I was like, I told my wife, let's wait for them to leave before we go on the hike. I'm really scared of these guys. <laughs> anyway, uh, they're all like like three times my size also. Like they don't make Jews the size of these guys. Um, anyway, so I, I put on this baseball cap and I go to the McDonald's and use the bathroom. And then I get back in the car and I go pick up this girl for our first date and we're driving around. And she says, by the way, do you normally wear a yarmulke? I'm like, yeah. She's like, because you're not wearing one right now. I'm like, what? And I, I'd taken it off with the baseball cap. My yarmulke went off in the cap, and uh, it was just very fun. I was like, if we get married, this will be such a good story. <laughs> anyway, um, but we didn't. And that was good because I married my wife. All right. So um, 
so the Talmud explains something very powerful. How did Bilaam do it? How did he have this power of evil eye that was like really powerful? He was famous for being able to curse. And the Talmud says because every moment of the day, God gets angry for a split second. And come back next week and I'll explain to you why that is. But the Talmud says that God is sending down love 24-7 except for one split second of every day says there's a split second, and the Talmud calculates it. It's a tiny little fraction of a millisecond of the second. There's a, bit, a little bit of anger each day. And Bilaam knew when that moment was. He was able to calculate that moment and tap into that un- moment. And in that moment, boom, then he cursed. And he's able to magnify that the power of anger, whatever that means. But um, just to tie it into what we're talking about. So, so the concept of anger, Kabbalistically, is... Love is flow of energy, positivity, life force, connection. Anger is a disconnection. There's a moment of disconnection from godliness, from life force. And at that moment, Bilaam was able to curse. So he was literally an expert in negativity. He he bred on negativity. He looked for negativity. When he was going around trying to curse the Jewish people, he tried to find their flaws. You know anyone like that that's just looking for you to make a mistake, say the wrong thing? Anyone have anyone like that? They're not pleasant to be have in your life, right? Someone who's just draws and feeds on negativity. So Bilaam was that to the extreme. He was always looking for that moment of of mess up, of slip up, of some of a flaw, and then he waited for that negative energy, and bam, he jumped on it. And he blew it out of proportion. Um, it's also interesting to note that Bilaam had, the Talmud says, uh, and the Torah explaining the verses in the Torah, that Bilaam was actually blind in one eye. So not only was he, did he have an evil eye, he actually had one evil eye. He had one bad eye. He had bad eyesight. So Bilaam literally embodied this concept. Yet we, on the other hand, have to become observant Jews. We have to learn to observe the good in each other. One of the greatest Hasidic masters, Reveli Melech of Lezhensk, who we often visit on Poland trips, has a prayer that he recommends saying every day before praying. It's a, it's a, it's a little, um, that's not a prayer, but it's turned into a prayer, but he has a, uh, he has a little saying that he, he recommends reading every day. And one of the things he has says in there is that is that we should pray every day to let us see the good in our friends. Now that's such an amazing prayer. Help me, Hashem, to go through life and to see positivity wherever I go instead of negativity. It's so easy to see the negative. It takes a lot more work to see the positive. But imagine what your life would be like if you saw positive everywhere. I actually was, um, I met a guy this week who out of nowhere um, I bumped into him at a, at a at a wedding, and he's like he's like I gotta meet with you. I'm like I've I've heard of his name. We never spoke before. He's like I found your videos on Facebook, and I love them. He's like you're so positive. You changed my life. Isn't that amazing? So I'm like I, I'm like listen. I'm not the most positive guy around, but I I I wish I could practice what I preached. But I ended up meeting with this guy, a really amazing guy. It was just amazing that that, that happened because I didn't know anyone was listening to my stuff. But um, well, there's another guy I know in California. I might have told you about this guy before. This guy is a woke up one day and was a paraplegic. Out of nowhere, he became totally paralyzed from the head down. And he's probably the most positive guy I've ever met. I wrote an article about him. Uh, you can find it on H.com. And he gives out these cards that say, keep smiling. And he goes around when he was in a wheelchair. He would just go around giving out these cards. And he was like, if I can smile, you can smile. And uh, such an amazing guy. When I was in the hospital with COVID, it was my birthday. And he, out of nowhere, I haven't spoken to him in years. He Facebook messaged me this incredible happy birthday song that he sang to me. Just an amazing guy. He actually learned how to walk again through uh through swimming he swims like a mile a day yeah amazing amazing guy but um his name yeah wow 
That's amazing. Who wrote the book? Oh wow. That is amazing. Amazing. So so he this guy in California, the who was a paraplegic, his name is Barry Shore. He says, You have to be a good looking Jew. He's like, You're so good looking. You're always looking for the good. And uh I thought that's a great way to live your life. So we want to be the opposite of Billum. We want to be the opposite of Billum because Billum got his energy and fed off of negativity. Now, what is black magic? How does it work? So the Talmud gives us a taste of one of the things that he did. There are other dimensions to black magic, necromancy and summoning spirits and connecting to un impure forces and impure spirits and for spiritual powers. The the simple explanation of all of it, without getting into all the details that I that are probably um, are out I'm out of uh, out of my scope of of knowledge, is that it's utilizing spiritual forces for your own benefit. So it's really not any different than the the manifestation, the secret, thinking positive thoughts, focusing not positive other people, focusing on what you want. And utilizing the spiritual powers that exist to manifest what you want, that to me sounds like black magic. Whereas the goal of Judaism is to want what God wants and to not go into these things. And we'll talk about it again in a few weeks in the Parsha talks all about different omens and astrology and what's our relationship to uh, to psychics and tarot card readings and astrological Sign. So we'll talk about that in more depth in a few weeks. So, so let's just let's just do a let's talk about prophecy for a second. So that was the idea of evil eye and Bilam's power. But how do we answer the? So how is it that that Bilam had the ability to curse someone if it wasn't meant to be? So the Orachayim explains that a person we all have guilt. We all do things that are wrong, and in the in the strict level of judgment we're all worthy of probably not being alive because we've all done all sorts of things we shouldn't have done in our life but god doesn't do that because god loves us and therefore we're permitted to make mistakes because that's part of what it means to be human so for the most part there's a delayment of punishment in this world we don't get punished for for the wrong things that we do and we shouldn't live our lives thinking about punishment we should think live our lives positively, thinking about our good qualities and the things that we've done good. And we should constantly try to improve ourselves, but not to dwell on the negative. My rabbi used to always say guilt is not a Jewish concept, even though Jewish mothers like to make you feel guilty about not eating the chicken soup or not calling enough. Right. But that's not a Jewish thing. They must have gotten that from the Catholics. So Jewish mother guilt is a Jewish thing. Guilt between us and God is not a Jewish thing. We should never feel guilty for the things we did wrong. We should feel remorseful, which is impetus to change. Guilt is dwelling on the negative. Remorse is feel bad. You did something wrong, feel bad. Apologize. Make a commitment to not do it again. Move on with your life. Don't do it again. Don't fall back into the same old rut, but don't dwell on negativity. Focus on the positives. Um, I, my my Rebbe, the... Uh, um, Hasidic Rebbe in, in Brooklyn, the Bostoner Rebbe it's from uh, Boston originally. The family originally was in Boston. Um, it's called the Bostoner Hasidus. It's for the only American-grown Hasidic movement. So he's a master of positive thinking. Whenever I try, you know, I like to complain a lot. That's just my nature. Um, don't let it rub off on you guys. And sometimes I call him to complain about something in my life. He's like, you got to look at the positive. Look at how much you have. Look at how good everything is. So I told him, I called him the other day and I told him, um, about something that I found that, uh, that, uh, that was a little bit negative that I heard um, a group of Jews do recently. And he said, that, he said to them, that was positive. That was positive for them. It wasn't, like ba- it wasn't anything bad that they did. It was just like a little bit excessively negative. They were focusing on like how bad something was. And I, I was like, I don't relate to that. And he's like, well, to them, that, to them, that's a positive thing. So, you know, we, it's not the way we do things. You know, it's, so you always got to keep your eye on the positive. So the Orachim says that we have negative things that we've done that make us deserving of punishment, but Hashem pushes that punishment away. But at a moment of judgment, if there's a moment of negativity, 
when we're being judged or we or there's a moment of anger in the world, then a curse can bring about a punishment that you already deserved. It's not that if you never did anything wrong, a curse can't hurt you. And in fact, the Talmud says the same thing about Ayin Hara. The Talmud says that if you believe that everything comes from Hashem, Ayin Hara and sorcery can't hurt you. So th there's, there's actually a saying to say, Ein od milvado, which means there's nothing but God. And that saying, the Talmud says, can, can prevent sorcerers or witches from harming you. Yes, we believe in witches also. We'll talk about it another time. But, uh, but recognizing that their power comes from God means that they're, pa they're powerless to harm you. And the same thing with Ayanhara. If you don't believe in Ayanhara, if, you if you're not worried about Ayanhara, if you trust with simple, simple faith in God, then Ayanhara can't hurt you. So, so, but that's, okay. So moving on, what is prophecy? And how is it that Bilaam was a prophet on a level of Moshe? So I believe that prophet, God is speaking to us at every moment. There is literally direct connection on, our, on the soul level to the source of everything. We literally have the ability to speak directly to God. There's only one problem, is that our soul is all the way up there, and we're all the way down here, and we don't have the free flow connection to our soul to be able to download the information that the soul is getting. We don't have the transmitter, the radio waves, the hardware to pick up the messages that are coming into the world at every moment. So how does one learn to pick up prophecy? How can we tune in to prophecy? So the Talmud says clearly, I actually just learned it the other day, that about 2,000 years ago, the rabbis of the great assembly the last group of prophets that made up the sanhedrin the uh the high court in jerusalem prayed that the power of uh, the desire for idolatry should be taken out of the world and it says that they were successful in nullifying the desire to worship idols we do not have that desire anymore there are people that worship idols in india and different places it's not what it used to be they do it because that's their custom, just like Americans have Christmas trees, right? But idolatry, the desire to worship a tangible form used to be so powerful. It was like our desire for money and, uh, and intimate relationships. That was their desire to worship idols back in the day. And that's why you see the Jews again and again and again start worshiping idols. Like ridiculous, like, you guys, you just saw God speak at Mount Sinai and you're going to worship idols again? Don't you know there's only one God? So it used to be a real powerful pull. And so the rabbis prayed that the desire for idolatry should be taken out of the world, and they were successful. And the Talmud explains that at that moment, we lost the power of prophecy at the same time. Because when there was a force so strong in the world towards negativity, you had to have an opposite and equal force towards positivity. But once we lost the desire for idolatry, we lost the ability to have prophecy in that open way. And at that point, they canonized the Tanakh. The Bible was closed and sealed at that point. So from a Jewish perspective, Jesus and Muhammad were not prophets because prophecy ended. Not only that, prophecy only took place in the land of Israel and other, other uh, requirements for prophecy. But we still today have something called Ruach HaKodesh, divine in inspiration, Holy Spirit, we have the ability to tap in to a sort of insight, a intuition. And righteous people, um, great rabbis throughout time and Rebetzins had the ability to tell people things that like literally were not normal, right? Like you might call it, uh, you know, what might be similar to that, uh, what's called psychic powers, right? But it's not psychic powers, they didn't learn how to do this. They're literally tuned in to something. They're tuned into something, and it, they weren't born that way. They had to earn it. So how do we? How could we earn that? So first, I'll tell you a story about a guy, a rabbi who lives. Uh, not a rabbi. A guy who lives in Jerusalem. Who, um, if you go to the Western Wall on the men's side, there's a Lubavitcher, a Chabad guy that puts the fillin on people. 
when they come to the Western Wall, if you've ever been to the Western Wall. And one of the guys that hangs out there is named Gil Locks, otherwise known as Guru Gil. Guru Gil, before he became a Chabad Chassid, was a guru in India. The Jewish guy who spent a lot of years studying meditation and Hinduism in India and eventually came back to the U.S. and he had a following and he had a whole uh, meditation center in upstate New York and then eventually got turned on to Judaism and the whole thing. When he first, he spent like weeks and weeks meditating. I don't remember all the details. And suddenly he said, was literally started picking up radio stations. He, he heard what was going on other places. He literally was tapping in. He was having visions. And it's actually, it's pretty crazy. So um, there was actually, not, I heard a story of a guy who spent a lot of time in ashrams in India. And he eventually came to yeshiva. And he he used to have like visions of like different things, like blue gods and stuff, like whatever. Um, and he called Guru Gil. And Guru Gil said, there must be a Hindu book somewhere in the room. And they found this book and they got rid of it and the vision stopped. Anyway, um, so so th I just remember this one story that Gil was meditating on the beach and he literally started picking up radio stations in his head and seeing visions. So how does one, how, what is that? What's going on? That's a, that's a real thing. So if you speak to the Buddhists, they'll tell you, ignore that. Those are all things to distract you. Just keep meditating. But the Hindus are really into these visions. So what, 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 what's going on? The answer is, is that one of the things that's preventing us from downloading is our thoughts are constantly chatting away a million miles a minute. Our brain is not thinking. It's, it's just feedback. It's like white noise. Your brain is constantly thinking. Constantly judging. In in Asia, they call it the monkey mind. Your mind's like, right? In in uh, in in Jewish sources, it's called the horse. Your mind is a horse, and it's just running wild, and you have to tame the horse. And if you can learn to silence the mind through meditation, you can begin to download spiritual signals. Literally, you have the hardware. You just have to learn to silence. The, the noise, right? When you tune the radio, you have to tap into the right frequency and suddenly, so that's the process of meditation. Meditation learns to silence the mind. But just by learning to meditate does not a prophet make, just by meditating does not make you into a prophet. It means you have the ability to tap into spiritual signals, but you can be tapping into spiritual signals that are not divine, right? These These blue gods, uh, and and various things and witchcraft and magic and sorcery. There are spiritual forces all around us. It can help you to hone in on some of those spiritual signals. But how does one tune in to divine light? So the answer is, is that that is all around us all the time. We have to learn to, to silence our mind to begin to, to hear that frequency. But this is the next step. In order for it to become prophetic, so you have to learn to see with clarity, insight. What does that mean? So it says that Moshe saw through a clear um, window. He had a completely clear glass that he was able to see the divine speaking to him. Uh, prophets received their, their vision actually as a vision. They saw an image. And then they interpreted that image and spoke. Moshe directly was given words to say. Most prophets received a sort of vision. So what does it mean that Moshe's glass was completely clear? So there's a story told of a guy who was at uh, the Louvre in Paris. And he looked at the Mona Lisa and everyone was like, wow, look at the Mona Lisa. It's such an amazing painting. And this guy looked at it and he said, eh, looks like yogurt. Like, huh? And then they go and they look at, you know, Rembrandt's most famous painting. And he's like, everyone's like, wow, look at this Rembrandt, the colors. He's like, eh, looks like yogurt. And then they go to see King, you know, Michelangelo's David. He's like, yeah, yogurt. And finally, someone's like, dude, there's yogurt all over your glasses. So the, 
the metaphor is that that is the way we see the world. We see the world through tinted lenses. All the other prophets received divine inspiration, but that divine inspiration was tinted through their lens. What was their lens? Their ego. The more thick your ego is, the more you have an inability to see the reality in front of you. You see the world the way you want to see it. You see the world filtered through your own narrow-minded vision. Moshe was so clean. His ego was so nullified. He was so selfless that he was able to see with absolute clarity reality in front of his very eyes. So learning to, so it takes two things to become a prophet. One is you have to learn to silence your mind. And two is you have to learn to fix your ego. That means work on your selfishness, your anger, your jealousy, your insecurity, your the things that make us small. In order to become a prophet, you have to become big. You have to become translucent. Instead of thinking I'm the man, you have to realize that I am a I'm a a servant of the man. I have the ability to reveal greatness through me. Doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. It means thinking of yourself less. Got that? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So the 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 level of prophecy that a person reveals is merely through that trans, transmitter. And there's one more thing the Talmud says about prophecy is you can only receive prophecy if you're happy. So the prophets used to listen to music, and they used to play music, and they used to dance ecstatically in order to get into this state of then being ready to receive. So that that's a taste. I'm sure there's much more to it. I'm only speaking from what I've learned, not from what I've experienced. But there is a certain wisdom that comes from silencing the mind and silencing the ego. And we can all tap into that in our own way, in our own life, by not asking, what do I want at this moment? Asking what is wanted of me. How can I be of service to others? How can I utilize the talents? Doesn't mean thinking that you're nothing, right? That's not humility. Humility is not thinking you're nothing. That's called low self-esteem. Humility is thinking that you have incredible talents, but those talents are gifts that you have to use in service of the divine. So Bilaam received divine inspiration. He knew how to silence his mind and tap in, but his vessel was so impure that he saw only that negative image that he wanted to see. So then how could we say that he was on the level of Moshe? So the Baal Shem Tov teaches that the only way a person can receive true prophecy is through a, a vessel which is pure. You have to purify your body. Bilaam was a disgusting person. How did he do it? So the Baal Shem Tov says, remember, Bilaam had one eye that was blind. Said the Baal Shem Tov, in that blind eye, Bilaam never did anything wrong. That eye was the place that he was able to receive his prophecy. So, very interesting. So, most of our problems with other people is not the other people. It's ourselves. It's the way we think about them. The way we perceive what they're saying might not really be what they're saying. I had an incident with someone this week. Someone accused us of doing all sorts of things that we really never did because the other person, I believe, was reading into the situation what they, their insecurity wanted to see. And we do it all the time also. Don't think that we're not guilty of it. We think we interpret reality according to our filter because our egos are blinding us. When we realize that everything Hashem does is good and that everyone around us has goodness in, in them, we can begin to see real reality, reality. And I once met um, a great rabbi, Rav Noach Weinberg, founder of Aish in Jerusalem, and I only met him once, and he gave me a blessing, gave me the following blessing. He said, Hashem loves you so much. He has so much good, so much blessing that he wants to give you. He has so much incredible wonders that he wants to pour down into your life. And the only thing stopping all that goodness from coming into your life is you. We interfere with God's goodness. 
by limiting him, by cursing. Remember, curse means to limit. By seeing things as bound in time, as limited. By limiting ourselves, by seeing ourselves as incapable of, of, of things, of telling ourselves, I can't. Rav Noah Weinberg said, to say I can't is idolatry. Because you can't do anything. But Hashem can do everything. So nothing stands in the way of your willpower. Because when you're tapped into the power of the infinite, if you're doing it because that's what God wants of you, nothing can stop you. So one time a student said to me, he heard that when a person gets married, all of their sins are forbid, forgiven like a newborn baby. He said, I can't wait to get married, so I get, I get to start over fresh. All right, you guys heard that? It's a good one, right? So I said to him, it's not going to help you. He's like, what? I'm like, yeah, it's not going to help you. I said, when we talk about Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, and being reborn and all these spiritual things that help us to be purified and reborn, those things are spiritual blessings. But if your body, if your vessel isn't pure, you can't receive those spiritual blessings. You're going to fall right back into the same old path. You're going to go back to the same old habits. The only way we can really receive blessing is if we transform ourselves. That means transforming our character. It means working on ourselves. Therapy, self-improvement, right? Everyday grind of, of working on ourselves and becoming better, learning to improve our relationships and improve our thoughts and our habits. It's like getting a blessing when you haven't worked on yourself is like getting a new Windows update on your computer but you're using like a 1999 computer with an old operating system it can't handle the update right so the only way we can really bring blessing into our life is by refining ourselves our job in this world is not to worry about the blessings our job is to worry about fixing ourselves it's called in hebrew tikkun hamidos tikkun like tikkun olam fixing our midos is our character if we learn to align ourselves with the bigger plan and learn to work on each and every one of our character traits so then the blessing is already here. The prophecy is already here. We just have to remove the barriers that prevent us from experiencing the goodness that is literally all around us. So we have a choice. And, and the, the Mishnah in Perkei Avos says, compares Bilam to Avraham. Avraham was a person of love. Avraham looked at the good in everyone. We have a choice. We can be a student of Avraham. We can live our life seeing the good in ourselves, first and foremost, and the good in everyone around us. Or we can be a student of Bilaam and we can see the negative. We can look for those moments of anger and try to curse and limit the people around us. So it's really our choice at any given moment. Do we want to live connected to the infinite possibilities of goodness or do we want to live in the limitation of negativity and narrow-mindedness? So... I want to bless all of you, all of you and myself, that we should connect constantly to goodness and see the good in our friends and not their shortcomings as well as in ourselves. Questions, comments?